We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host Nick Filato. Today we want to decide to do something a little different than we've done maybe in past seasons. We're going to do 10 things that we think about the Giants after week one. Now, these are going to be things that we think now that we might have not thought before this season or that we weren't as sure on or as certain on or as enthused on, however you want to phrase it, before the season. So you won't hear something like, oh my God. We learn now Brian Dable has a big old set of balls when he went for it on two and all the other things, because we kind of knew that going in. I think we both speculated based on everything in his track record and his history, based on what he said in his presser. And I know, look, shouldn't bank everything on what these guys say in their presser. Dave Gettleman said he's going to fix the offensive line, his first job of duty. But um, ultimately, I wasn't a big surprise to me. So we're going to get into other things that might be, I don't want to say surprises, but just things that we think now that we maybe weren't thinking for whatever reason, before the season. So, Nick, before we do that, I wanted to know, how are you doing today? How are you feeling after you uh, you didn't break the Aaron Robinson news, but you uh, gave gave a little medical report via text to me uh, <laughs> about the Aaron Robinson news? Yeah, I definitely did not break that news. And it, it's, it's unfortunate for the kicks. I felt like he had a really good game, and I'm not really 100% certain how the Giants are going to replace him. They signed Justin Lane. You have Cordell Flott. Is Flott ready after missing all that time in training camp and also being a predominant slot defender at LSU? I doubt it. So it's going to be a vulnerability. We thought it was a vulnerability heading into week one. I felt like Aaron Robinson, like I said, played well. But that's something that is scary. And yeah, in terms of the appendectomy that he had, I'm not 100% certain what kind of surgery he had. I went to the East Orange VA. I didn't have the luxury of top-notch elite medical doctors. So hopefully he's back on the football field. We saw Joe Burrow, his ruptured. I'm, I'm not even sure if Aaron Robinson's appendix ruptured. His ruptured, and he was out of practice for about two and a half weeks and didn't take contact for over a month. So I have no idea. Not a doctor. We'll How never claim to, to be a doctor. For me, I mean, I, I'm not a professional football player, and I, I don't right. uh, have contact, but I was told I couldn't lift for six weeks now of course i did but i didn't like do legs and squat or do anything that's going to really <laughs> said, of course i did I, I waited a little bit though you know i mean, who knows i mean i i can't speculate on on this specific thing all i know is you know it sounded like oh yeah he's out right now you know he had an appendix thing but i'm just like well if he had that thing removed and had surgery and they cut into his core muscle then 
he might be out for you know a couple weeks here, and, and the Giants have a huge liability potentially opposite of Adore Jackson. Yeah, I really wasn't aware of the timeline till we start texting a little bit about it. If it took you, if they told you don't lift for six weeks, and of course Nick can't help himself, he has to lift. He can't. Can, God forbid he takes six weeks off while still eating healthy. But <laughs> otherwise, look, this is a professional athlete, and you got to think the timeline's probably a little, I guess faster maybe i don't know uh, but i wasn't even aware this was going to be some kind of multi-week absence like three four five weeks they, they literally can't afford this it sucks too because we literally just went over on the defensive podcast that aaron robinson had a really good debut for the giants and by debut i mean debut in this new role as the starting outside boundary corner and yeah it wasn't a tough matchup or anything but it doesn't matter he played well you have can only face the people who are in front of you so this is disappointing for me because I don't really have any faith in the Justin Lanes or the uh, the, the Moreaus of the world. Really disappointed. Maybe Cordell Flop, but it really didn't feel like he was close to being ready when we watched him in the preseason. So this is super bad for the Giants, unfortunately. If this is a position they were already attacking, it's going to be a position they're going to attack even more moving forward without Robinson. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a position that they're going to attack. You know Ben McAdoo and his amazing offensive mind is going to circle whoever that cornerback is and just go right at it. It could be a huge day for Robbie Anderson, or maybe Ben McAdoo moves DJ Moore around. DJ yeah. Moore is one of the most underrated wide receivers in the National Football League, so that would be a big mismatch for whoever is not named Dory Jackson. I'll be interested to see if Dory travels with Moore this game. Uh, I would do that if I was coordinating a defense. I'm curious to see if the Giants will do that. Yeah, Dory Jackson was on Robert Woods quite a bit in that game. I'm not sure if he really traveled. I know the one play where the where the Titans aligned Robert Woods in the backfield with Ryan Tannehill. He basically was playing the middle linebacker position, Dory Jackson. He was going to travel in that situation, which makes a lot of sense. But yeah, we'll have to see what, how Wink Martindale adjusts his defense to this kind of big news. Yeah, it really is. Sucks, but hopefully things get better. And, and, and honestly, it only, for me, like increases the urgency of the Giants getting back Kayvon Thibodeau and Aziz Ojolari. I did not realize this Aziz Ojolari injury was going to linger like this. I really thought they were just being precautious and that he would be like ready for week one. And then I'm reading all these things about how calf injuries are so tricky. They're kind of like those, you know, uh, ham not hamstrings, but they're kind of like those soft tissue injuries. Not the same, but somewhat like that. And that sucks, dude. <laughs> I just didn't expect that. I didn't expect to be out with both of these guys week one, maybe week two. Ellerson Smith too, man. That's right. three of your pass rushers that you were really going to rely on. Three young pass rushers with a lot of juice. And honestly, man, with with Ojolari, that looked like when he was limping out of practice, that could have been a season ender. Hopefully, he can get on the field soon. But that I mean, true. could have been a lot worse. That is true. I guess it looked worse at first, but then we got that report like almost immediately, like ah, oh, it's not that bad. And then he's mm -hmm. like day to day. But the, I'm starting to learn these day to days from Brian Dable. <laughs> these day to days are like Belichick day to days. Like it's basically like. Nothing. They're not giving any information. Like Wando Robinson, he called day to day. Who knows when he's coming back? I have zero in, zero timeline on him that I believe in. So we'll see what happens with all these guys. But again, urgency to get those guys back on the field for me has certainly increased without any kind of solution at cornerback two with Robinson out. But let's get into the ten things that we think now about the Giants after Week One. So I want to kick this one off, Nick, with. The Giants, to me, and this is something I didn't think, and obviously we made the predictions in our Sunday show just before the season, or as a weekend show we dropped just before the season opener, and we suggested this team probably going to go under 7.5. I think we both picked under. After week one, I got to tell you, Nick, I think this team might win 8-9 to nine games, and that's something I did not think 
before the season week one. That's something that was all proven to me in week one for a variety of reasons. We're going to go over in the following nine things. I don't want to spoil all of them. A big factor in those in, in the reason why I think they can now win eight to nine games because the schedule was always going to be as easy as it is. We knew that going into the season. Nothing changed there on that front, except but actually something did change. The two yeah. the one Cowboys game, the first one for sure, got a lot easier. He is probably expected to be back. That's Dak Prescott for the Thanksgiving game, but they did get one game a lot easier. So actually the schedule did change a little bit. But for me, it's there's other factors that the Giants showed in week one that we're going to go over in this podcast that lead me to believe they could be an eight to nine win team. And it discusses with you, Nick, do you also feel this way or are you unsure still? I think there was always a possibility. We said in the preseason that there's a lot of variance with this team, Dan, they could win 10 games. They could suck and win six. A lot of it kind of rides on Daniel Jones. It's a weird situation where you have two of the faces of the franchise, your quarterback and your running back who are in contract years. That, that's odd. You have a new regime coming in. There's just a lot of things that are in flux right now with this team. So I think the variance is incredibly high. I think they played really well against Tennessee. I think the range of outcomes, it's pretty wide. But I do believe they can get to eight and nine wins. And it's not because they're an excellent football team. I think, again, it comes down to the fact that you're playing the AFC South, the NFC North, and teams that aren't all that great within your division, other than the Eagles. Yeah, and even so, eight to nine wins isn't really excellent anyway. It's like average, but I do think the ceiling might even be higher, like you mentioned, potentially 10 wins. And like you said, it's schedule-based, but also I just, we'll get into it in this podcast, but there's a lot of things to take away long-term and short-term, but I mean long-term as far as this season goes, about the coaching and about some of the players who really played well that lead me to believe, I mean, look, I'm not, it's not lost on me that quarterback plays a massive role in the NFL. <laughs> I've preached that for a while now. And and personally, I don't think Daniel Jones had a bad game at all. I don't buy into anyone who's saying he had that good of a game. It just didn't look that way on film. He really did. The, the yards per the air yards were like we talked about in the last podcast under six. Basically, they didn't ask him to do anything but layup throws. And he made one really good read to Sloan Shepard. And then one really bad throw. That was his whole game. One really bad decision and throw, the interception. One really good read. And I thought was a pretty good throw, the touchdown to Shep. And then basically just layups and nothing else. So I still need to see him get to the next level. You know, somebody who can consistently challenge the intermediate levels, consistently challenge the deep levels, make more than just the layup throws. For me to believe, wow, this team could be 10, 11, 12 win type stuff and and potentially, you know, push for a playoff run. But as far as winning eight to nine games with an easy schedule, I think the Giants game plan might be able to get there. Like I, if they have something similar to what we saw in week one, with a little bit more passing when it's allowed for if the offensive line gets better and they don't have to match up against Justin Simmons every week, or I'm sorry, Jeffrey Simmons every week. I think there could be some production that we didn't see, at least in week one, more production like I'm talking about in the intermediate and deep range, Nick with Daniel Jones, and he's going to get better, I think, too. At least I don't know how what level, but I think he will get better in the passing game as well. So to me, like, I'm just open to this idea now that this team can win because they have an identity they've already established that can win, right? They're going to play good defense. They're going to tackle. They're going to rally to the football. They're not going to let you beat. They're not going to let your best player beat you. And they're able to base everything off their run game with Saquon Barkley, who at least in week one, and we'll get to this a little bit on this show, Nick, looks like he could be an, a focal point of an offense. Looks like you can run an offense through him. And he's not the only piece. Because obviously we talk, we'll talk later about it, but Kadarius Tony could also be that second piece you need in an offense to keep defensive attention away from Saquon Barkley, your first piece. So 
that's a formula that's won in the NFL before, Nick. That's a formula as far as eight to nine to ten wins goes. That's a formula we've seen teams win eight to nine games with. So to me, it wouldn't be a total shock. Honestly, even two years ago when the Browns won a lot of games, they didn't really have much from their quarterback play, in my opinion. Most of it was scheme from Kevin Stefanski, the play-action passing game, easy layup throws Stefanski gave Baker Mayfield, and an insane running game. Now let's play devil's advocate. I love what Mike Kafka was able to do with the rushing attack, what the offensive line was able to do, and then especially what Saquon Barkley was able to do. Now let's say you're playing a team who has better linebackers and who are in position just a click faster. And that rushing game isn't springing 60, 30, 18-yard runs from Saquon Barkley. Can Daniel Jones bring this team, put the team on his shoulders, and lead game-winning drives without relying on a potent rushing attack? I'm not saying he can't. But at the same time, he's not going to have a team that rushes for over 200 yards to back him up all the time. And I think that's the devil's advocate argument to the the point that we're making here. Sure. And I, I got some pushback this week because I said something on Twitter, like not taking anything away from the dude, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys the way I look. I've always promised to call it like I see it and not, you know, fall not feel bullied into saying things that don't make sense. And it's hard for me to call that a game-winning drive by Daniel Jones when all he does is a couple layup throws at the beginning and then a play-action pass to a wide-open person for a one-yard touchdown. Like, look at the game log. Look at the play-by-play. Saquon Barkley, that was a a Saquon Barkley game-winning drive. Everyone knows that. That was a Saquon Barkley plus an offensive line game-winning drive. I mean, that's it's crazy to say otherwise. And Kafka. For the two play calls that we praised him for, the rollout on fourth and one after going to the after going to the bootleg on fourth and one after going to the quarterback decision keeper on third and two, and then obviously the wide open touchdown he gave them, and obviously then on the two point conversion it was Saquon Barkley individual play. That's not to take anything away from Daniel Jones. That's what they asked him to do, and he did it. He made the layup throws, a couple short ones to begin with, and then the the obvious easy one to Myrick for the touchdown, and that's it. And that's fine because that's what they wanted to do. What you're saying, Nick, and I only bring this up for this reason is. That might not work all the time. And then it's on Daniel to actually have a game-winning drive, to throw a 17-yard ball, to throw a 16-yard pass, maybe to throw one over the top in the red zone, maybe to throw a 22-yarder for a touchdown. To do what Ryan Tannehill did. Sure, right. Layer that ball into Kyle Phillips for the game-winning field goal attempt. Exactly. That's the type of stuff that we're talking about. We're not going to need it all the time. We can probably base this offense mostly through Barkley and then hopefully Tony, but sometimes we are going to need that from Daniel Jones. And so I totally understand that point of view from you 100%. All right, let's move on to number two, Nick. And we came up with this list together. Number two is, at least for me, man. Wow. I think Mike Kafka can be a difference-making play caller in the NFL. Now, it's not to say I didn't think this was possible, but it just wasn't on my radar before the season, Nick. He never called plays in his life. I was a little bit nervous about that. He, we didn't really know what kind of play caller he would be. We didn't know if he was going to bring in Kansas City influence, which he did, or if he was going to do his own thing, which I thought also thought he did a little bit of too, because there were timely calls that he made in this game that, in my opinion, in some ways, Andy Reid has missed at times, just from a feel standpoint. But what he showed me in week one, my God, Nick, he had timely calls. He adjusted his entire game plan and retooled it because it wasn't working. That's amazing. He had creativity within his play calls. He went for the throat like you talked about with that Kadarius Tony play call. He literally did everything I could ask for 
for somebody in their debut as a coordinator. It was as close to an A-plus game calling a game that you can have, especially given all the deficiencies, not having anything really at left guard, not really having receivers who practice with the quarterback for most of the season. Shepard, Tony, you know, Wanda Robinson goes out early. You have to go to your next man up, Richie James. You're playing two rookies on the offensive line. All of those things factored in to still have those timely calls like he had, some brilliant play calls like he had. We're talking about the touchdown, the game-winning touchdown. Uh, we're talking about the two-point conversion, which I still think is an amazing call, even though it wasn't executed that great by the Giants, and it was guessed pretty good by the Titans. We're talking about the rollout on fourth and one, QB keeper after going with the QB keeper, the trick, but everything that he did to me showed, wow, we might have a difference-making play caller and offensive coordinator. I already felt like we had that with Wink Martindale because, look, you listen to Greg Cosell, and he's like, ask, pull the offensive coordinators around the NFL. Wink Martindale's the name that comes up the most when it comes to who's the hardest defensive coordinator the game plan against. And now I feel like the Giants honestly might have a real difference maker, potential like elite type level offensive play caller. I agree. I think he coached a really good game here for the New York Giants. And I love the looks that he showed. I put up a piece on Big Blue View about the rushing attack and how he maximized motion and showed that jet motion so many times. I think it was like four or five times before the first play in the fourth quarter where he handed the football off to Kadarius Tony for 19 yards. And you could see how Tennessee Titans reacted to the motion. They didn't pay attention to it. One player did. Amani Hooker, he followed Kadarius Tony the entire time. Everybody else was looking at Saquon Barkley. And the reason that play worked so damn well was because he showed that jet motion all throughout the game. Then he finally handed the football off to Kadarius Tony, And he showed it with Sterling Shepard. He showed it with Richie James. And that's just a way you set the defense up for failure. Keep showing them a look. Keep showing them a look. Don't do anything off of it. Do other things. And now you actually hand the football off. And guess what? That defense is not going to be expecting it. We're all humans here, man. You see something several different times. You're just like, oh, it's just the guy motioning over, trying to check what kind of defense we're in, whatever. No, this time we're going to hand the football off. And he did the same thing with the Kadarius Tony pass as well. Orbit motion, roll him out to the flat, get the defense looking in that direction. And then I believe it was a quarterback zone read off that quarterback run. And he picked up like two yards. A couple plays later, do the same orbit motion. And Kadarius Tony hits him in the flat for that double pass after the 33-yard run by Saquon Barkley. And not to mention just the way he varied his rushing attack. He was running strong side, weak side, right. boundary, field, power gap, counter, some zone, outside zone, zone read, a little bit more power gap. He loved to pull because the defensive front of the Tennessee Titans was allowing him to pull when they weren't aligning anybody over the top of John Feliciano. So you have Andrew Thomas blocked down on that two technique to the play side. You could pull both the play side guard and the center. It wasn't going to be any kind of interior pressure with Mark Lewinsky being able to cut off the backside pursuit. I just thought he took advantage of the way the Tennessee Titans were playing him, and he had a plan. He adapted to what Tennessee was doing, and then he kept exploiting what they were doing. I couldn't speak higher of what Mike Kafka was able to do against the Titans. You nailed it, Nick. He adapted and he had exploited. That's the key here, right? He adjusted and made his decisions based on what the defense is showing. We don't feel like that happened enough with the past coordinator the Giants had and the past play call the Giants had. In addition to that, like you said, you can try, like Jason Garrett tried a few interesting things here and there in a game, right? But what he didn't do is exactly what you broke down in your point before that, Nick. And that's show it, show it, show it, show it so often that when you finally do the other thing, when you finally show, when, or when you finally pull it out and actually do what you're going to show, like you use, like you said, with the orbit motion, it's not expected because it's not like it only happened once and then you see it a second time and you're expecting it. When you do it more often, it makes it a lot more difficult for the defense to adjust to it. And he made 
motion. I mean, look, we talked about it on the last podcast. But we can bring it up again because it's so important. He used motion on 67% of his snaps, two-thirds of the snaps. That's the difference right there. You have to bake it into your entire game plan if you want to have it be effective. And that goes with everything from a play-calling standpoint and from an offensive game planning standpoint. He understands that. That's the biggest difference for me right there. And my God, Nick, I mean, look, we can talk about the defense on another time because we do feel like Patrick Graham did a lot of good things. But as far as the offense goes, we literally went from arguably the worst offensive play caller in the NFL, an offensive coordinator in the NFL, to maybe what we're thinking can be an elite type guy. I don't want to say top five because there's so many good ones, but I think he can easily work. It's like, look, dude, I'm so enthused by it. I think he could be top 10 this year. But regardless, it doesn't matter. He's clearly in the top third. We're going from potentially last, if not bottom five, to the top third. And that alone makes such a difference because, look, we knew going into this year, roster-wise, the Giants aren't there yet, right? We had to right so many wrongs from the Gettleman error. We have no depth because of the Gettleman error. We have bloated contracts because of the Gettleman error. We get that, okay? We understand that. Every fan can understand that. But you can win games with coaching, and and that's clearly what we saw in the first game. I mean, the players played. I always think that, and the players made some really good plays too. But it's impossible to look at that first game and not feel like the coaching had a massive influence over the Giants' win and loss from the two-point conversion to all the play calls we talked about to Wink's game plan and execution. It's all there now for the Giants, and that's a way they can win more games than the six and the four and all the crap we had under the judge and and Garrett error. We now have coaching that can help them win games. And we saw adjustments in-game, but now we need to also see week-to-week adjustments because now there's NFL film out there that defensive coordinators, opposing defensive coordinators, can now scheme against to take away some of the things Kafka might have liked to do. And another adjustment, or another call, I should say, in terms of motion that we saw that really just helped the Giants seize this victory was the second-and-goal touchdown pass to Chris Myrick. What did they show several different times? Wide receiver insert. You motion Sterling Shepard in. You have him go inside of the tight end in that C gap, side of the tight end, side of the tackle, and then pick up that safety for additional blockers in the box. Well, they motion David Sills in. Everybody looks at David Sills, and then it's the play action. And I also like, and I broke this down on Big Blue View's YouTube if anybody wants to check it out. If you look at that play from the end zone angle, you can see little subtleties as to what the offense might do. Look at Chris Myrick's split. He's in line, but he's about, I would say, two feet outside of where a normal tight end would be in that type of situation. And if the Tennessee Titans noticed that, they might have been able to catch on to the fact that Chris Myrick was not going to block. Why would you be that far separated? But that's just a little subtlety that Chris Myrick was going to leak out to the flat there. That's not a normal split for a tight end in a situation where he's going to be blocking down on a, on a defender trying to pursue Saquon Barkley from the backside or even the strong side, that is. So uh, that's just one of those little things that I, that I caught on on the film, and I thought it was pretty cool. Love those little film tidbit, tidbits, Nick. All right, let's get on to number three, the third thing that we learned after week one. Saquon Barkley. My God, dude. So I said this after the 2018 rookie season. This is when I was still working for 24-7 sports. I looked at his rookie season. I looked at some of the numbers. And they really did at times, like if you go back and look at it, he broke like such a sick amount of records. And some of them were uh, Barry Sanders records. I remember there was the most 40 yard plays in a season. He nearly broke that record. He challenged CJ2K for that. There was all sorts of stuff that he did. And I posed the question, can he be the best NFL running back? I'm not disillusioned to the to, fa- to the fact and the point that he's probably never going to be the, the kind of vision runner and processor that a Nick Chubb is. But there are things that he can do that Nick Chubb can't do that I think belong in the conversation and give him the opportunity 
to threaten for the best back in the NFL. That is his explosiveness, his rare God-given ability to cut, his rare God-given ability to get behind his pads when he wants to and power through and break tackles and create yards of contact. Not to say a Nick Chubb, who I think might be the best running back in the NFL, can't do those things. But in a lot of ways, Saquon Barkley offers more, especially when it comes to the explosiveness and the breakaway ability. That's where he separates from those kinds of bigger backs. And he is a bigger back, Saquon, and he showed it in week one. But now when I watch back the film, and we, we're, we're probably not going to do some kind of film short on him. We might do some on other players. We talked a lot about him off the podcast. But now when I'm seeing him do things like press the line of scrimmage and then cut back for that touchdown, when I'm seeing him do things like process and show patience for these pullers to come around and then make the right cut, when I'm seeing him do things like, oh, no, the right guard got blown right, blown up right back into his face, he says, that's okay. He, he makes a hard, sharp cut, gets vertical, and creates four yards. If he's going to do all that, to me, there's a strong possibility he can challenge to be the best running back in the NFL. Now, I forgot to put Jonathan Taylor in that, my boy. He he certainly belongs in there because he's he's he, he has the vision and potentially all of the tools I just uh, talked about. But all of those things make me to believe, lead me to believe if he can build on what he showed from the mature, in my mind, not maturity. It's not the right word, but just from the processing standpoint that he that he showed in week one. And that could be just all really good coaching, by the way. Kudos again to this coaching staff. Just firing away kudos to these people as they deserve it right now um but it leads me to believe man that you can build an offense around him right now and then i'm thinking like nick so i want you to address first of all that best back in the nfl take potential all right then i want you to then we got to talk about the big thing here would we be open to a potential re-signing because i'll give my take on that in a second but i want to let you speak first we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You may start noticing there are strange tall boys of beer in the bottled water section of your local stores. Well, it's not beer. Actually, mountain spring water from the Alps. And it's called Liquid Death. You may see your coworkers cracking these open at the 9 a.m. stand-up meeting, but again, not beer. They're just parched, dehydrated, or just downright thirsty, and they're drinking the new mountain spring water brand called Liquid Death. Go get Liquid Death at your local Woodman's, 7-Eleven, Roundy's, or Hy-Vee, or find a Liquid Death retailer near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com. Just use the promo code BIGBLUE. So go to liquiddeath.com slash big blue if you want to try this tasty new liquid death. 
What's going on, Big Blue Banter listeners? Do you like to place bets and find ways to optimize your betting experience? Well, then OddsTrader.com is the place for you. OddsTrader is a place to compare odds from all the major sports books. You can also compare the different sign-up codes and promotions from sports books to get the best deal. OddsTrader offers handicapping, play-by-play updates, player statistics, key game statistics, live scoring and tracking, projected game day, weather, and Bet Tracker allows you to keep records of all your games and betting activity. So if you like to place bets and you want to get the most out of that experience, go to oddstrader.com and use the promo code BLUEWIRE. That's oddstrader.com slash BLUEWIRE. OddsTrader, the number one site for all your game day bets. So that would have to be a really team-friendly deal. And as for the best back in the NFL, I don't want to put the cart before the horse here. I think Saquon Barkley played phenomenally in week one. He was running low behind his pads. He had really good vision and was allowing his blocks to materialize and then cutting on a dime, staying really, really low to the ground, really, really tight to the block. And then that burst, man, it was just back, that burst and acceleration through the hole, stuff that we have not seen from Saquon Barkley, basically, I would say, since 2019. So... I don't know if he would be the best in the NFL. I think I think that's a little aggressive. But if he continues to play like he played against Tennessee, then he's definitely in that conversation. And one of the primary reasons why he is is because of his game-changing athletic ability. I love Dalvin Cook. I love Nick Chubb. I love Derrick Henry, Christian McCaffrey. There's a one-two punch between having okay. everything together if Saquon Barkley can consistently display the the, the traits that I went over before, and that would be Jonathan Taylor yeah. and Saquon Barkley. Right. Whereas Christian McCaffrey is, is he's up there too, but the injury thing, like that's, that's something that kind of lingers over yeah. him. He's very unique. So I can't say that he's the best in the league, uh, Saquon Barkley right now, but if he continues playing like this, he'll definitely be in that conversation. The two best running backs in week one were Jonathan Taylor and Saquon Barkley. And I'm going to put Barkley a tier ahead of him just based on week one performance because of what, and I think this was Doug Ferrar, whoever pointed this out, Lovey Smith, Houston Texans defensive coordinator, the single worst defensive mind currently in the NFL. Who knows why he got that job? It's unbelievably bad by the Houston <laughs> Texans. I stand by this, but I saw a stat today, Nick. This is unbelievable. They literally didn't stack the box for a single one of Jonathan Taylor's attempts in week one, the Houston Texans, 0% box stacks. They didn't give themselves an advantage in the box once against Jonathan Taylor. And obviously the Titans had a more aggressive game plan and they wanted to do some things to take away Saquon Barkley. So for that reason alone, I feel like he might've been the best running back on the field in any game in week one. That's crazy. Didn't Lovey Smith do something like some really, really Joe judge type of punt that like basically put the, Texans in a position to not win the football game. I think they punted with like a fourth and one around the midfield and they just basically settled for the tie instead of going for the win. Our coach right now would never do that. Our former coach would love that. He would love that. And thank God that's gone. All right. Fourth thing we learned this upgrade at right guard could be bigger than anyone realized because it's not like we thought Glowinski wasn't going to be a nice addition. We kind of just thought like, eh, well, good job. The Giants found something they can they can bank on in this region. They had nothing to work with financially, but they got something, and it was what we wanted. They upgraded the offensive line, but it is Mark Lewinsky. He played on that Colts line. He was aided by Quentin Nelson and everyone else there. He's older. He's not, you know, as flashy on film as some of the other guys that we saw, like James Daniels and other other guys that hit the free agent market and got bigger deals at that guard position. But after week one and watching the film, Nick. He's, it seems like we he might be making a much bigger difference for this season than we originally may have thought. Yeah, he played 
fantastically as a run blocker. It was getting pushed back a little bit as a pass blocker, but holding his own at the same time. The best play by him, though, was that 33-yard scamper, Dan. That that was insane. It was another pin-pull concept. Both the guard play si- or play-side guard in the center, they pull, and the Titans slant. So basically... What they do from a defensive front standpoint is they're aligned, say, the guy over the top of Glowinski, he's a two-eye technique. He slants into the B-gap around Glowinski. Glowinski thinks initially at the snap that he's going to block this dude, but instead, the guy slants. So what does he do? He just recollects his balance, like we said on the offensive pod, and then goes all the way to the other side of the field, locates Amani Hooker, and just creates this seal for Saquon Barkley to explode between Glowinski's block on Amani Hooker and Daniel Bellinger's block on the middle linebacker. And dude, no one would think that Mark Lewinsky from the backside of this play would be able to get all the way to the opposite side on the other side of the hash, almost to the numbers to take out Hooker to allow Saquon Barkley to run. If that block is not made, Dan, and there's so many processing things that have to go, so much awareness that has to go into him being in that position to execute that block, not to mention the foot speed and athletic ability. If that block isn't made, I don't know if the Giants win this football game because that is such a pivotal point of the game that sprung the 33-yard run that set up the Giants' touchdown that set up the two-point conversion that put the Giants in the lead. So literally a game-changing block right there that no one's really discussing, huge. And not to take shots at Will Hernandez, and I know I brought this up on the two podcasts ago, there's no chance he puts himself into that position to make that block. He's not athletic enough. I don't think he's aware enough. So the upgrade from Mark Lewinsky over Will Hernandez, its I don't think it can be overstated, man. It, it's, it's great. It really is. Such an excellent breakdown by you right there, Nick. And it's truly cool to hear. You know, it's just such a special thing to hear this kind of breakdown for a player that, look, we liked, but we just ultimately didn't know if he was going to be that big of an impact player. Now we have a potential big impact player at right guard, a big, we know we have a locked in big in player at left guard, impact player at left, I'm sorry, left tackle, right tackle. We feel like we like what we saw there a lot too. And we know the upside there is obvious. He was obviously the seventh pick overall for the New York football giants. And then left guard, man, it's not there quite yet, but we saw some pretty damn good flashes, at least in the run game from Joshua Zudu. So it's just, I haven't felt this good. Maybe we didn't put this in here. It could have been a thing we learned, but I feel like we thought this might be the case before the season. And I haven't felt this good about a, a Giants offensive line in God knows how long, really literally 2008. That's that. It's insane because it's 2022 right now. It's somehow taking them 14 years to make us feel good about an offensive line when everyone and their mother knows that you can't win football games without an offensive line. But we're here. I'm happy we're here. I don't care about the things that went down in the past, Nick. And I'm happy that we can look at somebody like Mark Lewinsky and feel like he's going to be a big contributor to their potential to win eight to nine to 10 games. And it's important, too, right? Because we felt vulnerabilities on this offensive line going into week one against Jeffrey Simmons. And guess what? I feel like Simmons exploited it specifically more in the first half. But Joshua Zudu at the left guard and Ben Bredesen, who those two switched, and then also John Feliciano, but both Feliciano and Azudu had game changing type of blocks as well. With Feliciano, he makes contact with that mic scraping over the top. It's not the cleanest type of block, but he finishes strong and then buries him in the ground. And then Azudu, I mean, on the goal line, that was such an impressive block right there. So even the guys we were a little worried about stepped up when they needed to to spring game changing plays for the Giants offense. Yep, you said it best, Nick. All right, let's get into the fifth thing we learned, or we think, sorry, we think after week one. I think we think that we haven't even seen the aggressive side of Wink Martindale yet. Dive into that one, Nick. Yeah, so I see a lot of stats flying around Twitter right now about how Wink Martindale, he blitzed like 50% of the time against Tennessee. And technically, I guess you're right, but a lot of those blitzes, Dan, they were simulated pressures where 
you only send four. And we've broken down simulated pressures plenty of times, but for any new listeners, a simulated pressure is when you, you send a player who typically does not blitz. So like a DB or a linebacker, and then you drop somebody else off the line of scrimmage into coverage, somebody who typically does go. But it's only four guys going on the blitz. So if you look at what the New York Giants did, what Wink Martindale did, they sent five guys on only 11 snaps. Most of the blitzes were just simulated pressures. And we know one thing about Wink Martindale. He always leads the league in cover zero. Cover zero is no safety, and then everybody's going. But the cover zero play, they only ran one, according to True Media, against the Titans. But it wasn't even really true cover zero. Yeah, there was no safety. But Jihad Ward and O'Shane Zimenez drop off the line of scrimmage. I don't think the Giants, or Wink Martindale specifically, was as aggressive as maybe the stats bear out. Because just going through the film, yeah, there were times where he sent five. Sometimes he sent six, maybe two or three times. But a lot of those pressures, a lot of those quote-unquote blitzes were just simulated pressures where a DB came, but on the backside of that, the end man on the line of scrimmage dropped off, and it only ended up being four. Yeah, I love it, Nick. And cover zero, just for those who walk it back a little bit, it's the no safeties over the top. And blitzes, according to me and Nick, and most of the NFL, is when you send more than four pass rushers. So I know it's been... We, me and Nick, were going over this before the pod. It's been some interesting charting on this because some people are charting blitzes, like Nick said, these simulated pressures that then Wick Martindale is sending. But it's not really a blitz if they're only sending four guys ultimately and the rest are dropping. So we don't consider that a blitz. We're only considering it a blitz when the Giants take one of the seven guys who could be out in coverage off out of coverage and, and send them toward the quarterback. So, like Nick said, we, we, we were looking at this beforehand. We're like, yeah, this is Ryan Tannehill. And I think Wink Martindale has a ton of respect for Ryan Tannehill. He's had a ton of matchups against him in Baltimore. Me and Nick, personally, like as we said on the defensive podcast, Ryan Tannehill is a pretty good quarterback. Um, I don't know if he's ever going to be like at that Herbert whatever level, but the Herbert Mahomes whatever level, Josh Allen. But he's a damn good quarterback. He throws a pretty good ball, especially when he's throwing from balance base. He also had a rep on there that I talked about where he threw off platform through an absolute dart to the sideline where the quarter it was per, placed so perfectly, the receiver tapped the two toes in and he processes decently fast. That's the whole thing. Like watching him, I think there's a clear tick. He's a clear tick faster at processing than a Daniel Jones type, but he's still kind of a slow processor. I still think that's what ultimately holds Tannehill back and slow is relative here. He's just not an ultra fast processor, like the really, really elite guys. The ball doesn't come out as quick as it really should for those elite level guys. But either way, he has respect for him as a quarterback. He's one of the better quarterbacks. He's not playing. Wink's not going to match up against Ryan Tannehill every week. It starts this week, right, with Baker Mayfield. It goes to the next week with uh, Cooper Rush. Then it's Justin Fields, who we think has talent, me and Nick, but he's not ready from a processing standpoint to, to deal with a lot of blitzes. So this could really ramp up as soon as this week, like right now. For the next three weeks, we could be seeing some blitz-heavy uh, game plans, simulated pressures that actually send extra brass rushers and attack these types of quarterbacks. When you put these types of quarterbacks out there who are slow processors or who you know don't necessarily want to deal with a lot of different trash they're not expecting coming at them, and as Wink said in preseason, look, my whole objective of my defense from a philosophical standpoint is I want to make the quarterback have to make a decision with the football before he's ready to make a decision with the football or he's comfortable to make a decision with the football. Maybe that wasn't the case against a matchup like a Tannehill type, especially when your whole game plan is to take away Derek Henry. But it's coming, baby. And that's what has me excited. Absolutely. And then week five and six, the Giants have Aaron Rodgers in England and then Lamar Jackson. But after that, Dan, you get Trevor Lawrence, Geno Smith, 
Davis Mills, Jared Goff, who is a solid professional quarterback, but doesn't deal with the blitz as well as a lot of other professional quarterbacks. And then you have the Cowboys again, and then Carson Wentz, who is not great under pressure. So you're talking about a lot of quarterbacks on this schedule during the middle part of the season that I think have a lot of vulnerabilities in terms of processing pressure and getting the football to a place that is going to create plays essentially for the offense. I think the exactly. Giants defense could be set up for some turnovers, some strip fumbles and some interceptions, but we have to see what's going on with Aaron Robinson. Hopefully he can get back there soon enough. And in addition to that, at least for me, you have to see what's going on with Aziz Ojolari and Kayvon oh, yes. Thibodeau, because those are the guys who are going to get the force fat, the four, uh, the force fumble sacks. I mean, look, could it happen with, with the Ziminens and the Quincy Rochets and whoever else are going to try to put out their Tom and Fox? Yeah, maybe, but the, the real deal, the, those Ezo Jalari and, and Kayvon Thibodeau are just a clear, clear step above the rest there. Because so. i got to be honest, too, Dan, man. Like, going through the film, how many two-verse-ones, three-verse-twos did you see schemed up by Wink Martindale? Not as many as I expected. Not as many as you expected, right? And that's because they were sending four a lot of the time. Now, we brought up one with, I think, Jahad Ward and Austin Calitro against Aaron Brewer, and I'm sure there were probably a couple more, but it wasn't as much as you would expect. It wasn't even anywhere close plan. to as much as we were expecting, to be honest, right? Yes, and that's also because you're going up, as you said already, going up against Ryan Tannehill, your, your, your game plan is to stop Derrick Henry. You have right. to respect the run. So, And the Giants also probably wanted to have a lot of those guys clogging the middle of the field, especially after that first drive, because they were getting chewed up by those right. horizontal crossing routes. Exactly. That's a great point. Okay, let's talk about the next thing that we that we think after week one. And this kind of touches a little bit. It's a little bit of a stretch just because it was part of my bold predictions. Um, one of my bold predictions was at the end of the season, we look at the PFF grades, which, by the way, aren't amazing. But out of all the positions, I kind of like their cornerback stuff a little bit better. I, I, I hate all grades, Nick, because I just my whole thing is like, who's doing these grades, right? Like it's some intern dude or some guy they hire for no money. I think they do. it. I remember when I was first trying to break in the business, I was like trying to potentially chart games. And like, I remember they emailed me back, like you'll do 80 hours of work and you'll get no money. And it was just like, all right, cool, great. Um, but they're not trained in my opinion to, to know football. Uh, they're also just, it's very subjective. These grades, like there's never been any kind of process that explains what what they are and there's numerical grades it just doesn't make much sense when you really break it all down but having said that it does you do tend to see the really good quarterbacks up there Jair Alexander all the real beasts are up there so maybe there's something to it I don't know but the next thing that we think now is Adoree Jackson could be a legit true shutdown number one cornerback after what we saw in week one I like it man I, I think he has the potential to be now there are a lot of good cornerbacks in the NFL. And there are a lot of cornerbacks who get exploited. Like we saw with Jalen Ramsey and Jair Alexander. Those are two of the top five cornerbacks in the league. But when you're going up against Justin Jefferson, one of the top five wide receivers, he's going to win some matchups and he's going to make you look silly. And that's exactly what happened. But in terms of Adoree Jackson, I love how he knows where he is on the football field. He looks so comfortable, so calm, whether it be man coverage, he has the athletic ability, the hips, the footwork, the discipline at the line of scrimmage to press. He has all of those traits to execute man coverage, but in zone, dude, I just feel like he understands the leverage of the route that is being run by the wide receiver and his leverage on that wide receiver. And there were so many times where he's just in a quarter turn, man, just backing up and just cutting off the angle of the wide receiver to the sideline while also having his eyes on Ryan Tannehill, looking at the number two, the number three receiver coming from the backside if it was a three-by-one set, and then putting himself in a position to almost come away with a game-sealing interception on that one play at the end of the game that was tipped by O'Shane Zimenez. So I, I just love how he processes the game. 
he just seems to be very, very, everything's connecting for him at the moment. And I don't think he's going to be challenged all that often either because he is steps ahead of whoever the Giants are trotting out there at cornerback too, especially now that Aaron Robinson isn't there. You nailed it, Nick. I think for me, the play that stands out the most as far as like, are these traits there? Does he have the capability and the upside to be an elite shutdown corner? Is the clip that you put up, I think, this morning, that speed turn that Adoree Jackson had. Oh, my God, dude. I'm watching it back now, and I was watching it a bunch this morning because it was just – the way I described this is just so fucking smooth. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to curse. So damn smooth. Like, excuse my language. Like, this is as perfectly executed as – I'm sure they watch back the film in the, corner, in the cornerback room, and they're like, look at this shit. Like, look at this guy right here. Mm-hmm. He's backpedaling. He's backpedaling. He makes the smooth turn and then breaks with so much speed to cut off in front of the receiver. Like, if a quarterback – if a quarterback, if Tannehill saw that, tried to challenge the out there. That's an interception right there for Adoree Jackson on a play where most cornerbacks are going to be burned. They're going to be like backpedaling and off balance, to, uh, maybe with their body shifted back toward the end zone. It's going to be an easy completion for some quarterbacks who have the arm talent to make that throw. But damn, he does the complete opposite with this. This is as smooth as a rep as I've seen in a long time from anyone on the Giants at the cornerback position. Like James Bradbury, Bradbury was a great corner. He played great in zone. He had great recognition, great spatial awareness. But this is like next level athleticism. This is great athleticism. This is a speed turn. And just for context, it's Robert Woods. He's aligned about a yard off the hash. So he's reduced. And Adoree Jackson is off him by about nine yards outside leverage. So you have a middle of the field closed safety. So Dory Jackson's influencing Robert Woods in that direction. He's going to take the outside. But what happens is Robert Woods kind of stems outward towards the numbers, but like in a vertical manner. He's not, he didn't go out. He didn't make any kind of sharp cuts. And Adore Jackson just stays on top of this route. When Robert Woods breaks outside right around the 10 yard line, he just executes one of the smoothest speed turns that you'll ever see. And then just 45 degree angle cuts off Robert Woods' ability to make a catch if Ryan Tannehill threw this football. And this was a play action rollout to a Dory Jackson side. So he's one of the main reads here, Robert Woods. And the way a Dory Jackson just cuts that angle off and then works in front of Robert Woods is so damn impressive. Everything about that play from a Dory Jackson standpoint was well executed. And you're right, man. They're going to be looking at that play in the cornerback room and be like, damn, bro, man, you were all over that. Yep, you nailed it. All right, one other uh, next thing we learned, this will be number six. The Giants might have a little bit of an O-line rotation going at left guard. This was a Joe Judgian error thing where they had the rotations going, but Brian Dable hinted about it in camp and during the preseason. There was a little bit of a steady drumbeat for it. And then at the presser this week, he said, look, they both earned snaps in practice with their preparation and how they prepared. And so they're both going to get snaps. And so Bredesen, Azudu, left guard rotation. What are, your, what are your thoughts on this potentially being a thing? I like it. I, I like it because both of these guys are working their tail off, like Dable said. And it also seemed like, I think Bredesen started the game and then Azudu got in there and Azudu was struggling to handle Jeffrey Simmons. So they put Bredesen back in there. Bredesen played 33 snaps, Azudu 29. But I appreciate that Brian Dable had the confidence in Azudu, who by all accounts has a great head on his shoulders, a very hardworking and conscientious type of dude put him back in there. And we saw the block that he had on strong down in the goal line. So I think both of these guys have talent and you should keep them fresh. You know, if one of them is struggling, take him out. It's not a confidence. Take him out, have offensive line coach, Bobby Johnson, talk to him. And then when it warrants, when some plays go by, you can put him back into the game until one of these guys really steps up and seizes the moment. But as of right now, they're both playing, I would say, relatively well. They have their warts here and there. So I'm fine with the rotation. I know it's something that Judge got bashed for, but I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. I don't really think it's the worst thing in the world either. I know it's not common around the NFL, 
but I don't really see the negativity that surrounds it at times. Continuity would be the the negativity. That's a great point. The continuity factor. Okay. I like that call. And I guess that's why you really rarely see it. But as far as it goes right now, the other options are, look, you play Bredesen the whole time because he's more ready right now. And he's less of those like alert, ugly reps that Azudu has. And then Azudu doesn't get to grow because we know Azudu is the long-term answer here at left guard. So, or you put Azudu in for all the snaps and you're going to get a lot more of those super ugly uh, pass pros, uh, you know, pass protections reps that you don't want out there that could potentially derail a game. Like, look, one of them, and it's not his fault again, freaking Jeffrey Simmons, but one of them led to a forced fumble sack. So right now, Azudu is not ready, in my opinion, to play every single snap. He, he, he's going to get there. And he's obviously, this is ultimately, we know where this is leading. We know the, and we, we see the end of the tunnel here. It's Josh Azudu as the starter. It's going to happen sooner than maybe we even expected. But for now, I'm good with this O-line rotation because I think it's a good way to get them both reps and to kind of feel this thing out right now. Absolutely. And I think it's wise to allow Azudu to to grow, learn from his mistakes, but don't kill his confidence and just put Bredesen in there all the time. So I do like that call. And I like that. That's just a good point overall about this coaching staff. It doesn't feel like it, I don't get the feel we have a staff in place that's like you make one mistake and you're done. You're on you're on the bench and that's it. Like because I've never been a fan of that style of coaching. I really haven't. And I know some of the best coaches have done it. Look, Bill Belichick benches you immediately if you fumble. I just I just not a huge fan of it. I never have been. I just don't like what it instills um, from a confidence standpoint. I think this game is a lot confidence. Like all sports are confidence based to me. It's also important to note that Azudu missed some training camp, which sort of Bredesen, but at the same time, Azudu was a guard. He was a tackle at UNC. He was switching positions one play to the next. So he, he hasn't necessarily had a lot of time at one position. And I think, and even in training camp, he was playing tackle for Andrew Thomas, who was out. So I think if he could focus in on guard while not playing every single snap to not overwhelm him, that's another reason why you should use Bredesen, who is a competent football player as well. Excellent point. Agreed. Because he was playing a little tackle to start this thing off. So Great stuff there, Nick. Let's go on to number seven. Number seven is maybe, just maybe, at least I think this now, and I definitely didn't think this one to begin the season based on frame and rookies in general at this position, but maybe, just maybe, the Giants have something there and someone who can immediately contribute at the tight end position as a blocker because rookie Daniel Bellinger had the 13th highest run blocking grade in the entire NFL, according to Pro Football Focus, in week one, and this is a Nick Filato stat he dug up. In the 66 games, the Giants allowed Evan Ingram to be their tight end. He he had only a higher run blocking grade in seven, seven of 66. Daniel Bellinger's first game as a pro, he had a better, he had, he had an unbelievable 13th best run blocking grade. So maybe there is something there right away from this dude, and maybe that's why they've done what they've done at the tight end position. Really let this be his thing. Now, if he was flagged on the first nice Saquon Barkley run, it would not have been that high. But at the same time, you watch the film, dude. Daniel Bellinger is in position. Now, he's going to get ragdolled sometimes by these dudes who are like 290 pounds. But I just love the fact that he is always in position to execute the block and he fights like heck, man. He fights like heck. I feel like he has strong hands. He's always churning his feet and he's got those swiveled hips, man. That one block that he had on the middle linebacker, the play that we broke down where Glowinski took out the safety, he had to climb up to that level, take an, a good angle, locate a player who was comparable in size, a little bit smaller, and then just turn his hips and swivel around him. That was a really well-executed block. It, it wasn't well-executed from a fundamental standpoint, but it was well-executed from a standpoint of, I'm just going to get in your way and allow our running back to make a play. So I think there's a lot of upside with Daniel Bellinger as a blocker. And I think 
give him time in the NFL, he's going to be a much, much better blocker than Evan Ingram. And that's something that I feel like we we kind of expected coming into the season, but I didn't expect it in week one, man. Like, that's crazy. He had a 68.7 run blocking rate, which is pretty damn good for a tight end, right? Yeah. Evan Ingram, dude, seven. The guy played 66 <laughs> NFL games. He only had that seven times, yeah. dude. That, that's pretty wild. And he was never going to get there. The frame was never going to allow for it. That was always the case with him. He was a receiver playing tight end. Yeah, think um, about how Doug Peterson's using him. He's basically using him yep. as a big slot. Yep, exactly. Um, I just found it interesting. We'll break real quick and get back into the, the 10 things. Josh Azudu, Daniel Bellinger. We didn't put him in this, but Micah McFadden had some really nice reps in week one. There's a really good chance, or at least it seems like it right now, Nick. The Giants are going to get more out of this day three draft class than they've gotten ever. They did get a lot of Slayton as a rookie. But aside from that, during these the four Gettleman years. Love, too. And love, they got a decent amount of. But they're getting more out of love now than, than really they did at the beginning. They did get some, but they're getting even more now. But as far as the early on thing goes, like the rookie season of these guys, they're getting a lot more than they've gotten in the past out of this. And this is even with the fact that they lost Darian Beavers. And I got to be honest with you, Nick, after watching the film of last week, Beavers, I think, would have been really fun to watch on film in that amazing point. For that amazing, game, right? <laughs> when you're going to have that game plan, we have those tight fronts on defense, the five man fronts. And you're really just allowing these linebackers to scream downhill and have fun with it. He would have been so good in that game. And that sucks because we lost him to injury. That one to me sucks even more than the McKeithen one, because I really just in my head could envision him in that tight on that Titans film doing what he was do- doing, what we just talked about. But even so, the three guys we mentioned, Bellinger, Zudu and and obviously Bellinger, or I'm sorry, Bellinger, Zudu and McFadden. McFadden. And now with the potential for more with Dane Belton coming back, we'll see what happens there. But they're getting more than they've gotten out of this rookie class. So I just wanted to throw that out there. But let's DJ get David, DJ Davidson. Oh, yeah, too, DJ man. Davidson, dude. Two tackles and seven snaps. How do you beat that? And I love the point you made about Darian Beavers. And you're 100% accurate there. Darian Beavers would have thrived. We would be talking about Darian Beavers so much if he did no. not get hurt. He, like, Tay Crowder, Micah McFadden, Austin Kalito, they all played well in this game. But that game plan against the Tennessee Titans was tailor-made for a player like Darian Beavers. And I'm excited to get, we're going to get a player like that in the draft pretty soon. It might even be McFadden, but we might even continue to just get more and more and more on day three. And I just can't wait because this is such a fun scheme for these linebackers. And I understand why Wink says what he says when he cut Blake Martinez. He's like, look, this linebacker position in the NFL has changed. And he didn't say it explicitly, but he's hinting for my system specifically and for my scheme specifically. I need speed at linebacker. And I need someone who's just going to be screaming downhill. And that's what, that's what they're going to keep getting, I think, at this position moving forward. Um, and so let's move forward to number eight, the eighth thing that we think after week one. And this is me and you. I know a lot of people are different on this. I've seen a ton of opinions on Twitter about this one. Some people do not agree with us on this. So I'm just going to put that out there right now, Nick. But we both think that Kadarius Tony, his role will grow. He played seven snaps. And I think you did a good job of pointing this out, Nick. If you watch the plays where he did, didn't get the football and the plays that are designed for him still, like you said, all he really did was run plays that were designed for to get the ball to him right away or drag routes. That's it. There were no routes downfield. And that just goes to show where he's at from a system standpoint right now. So you feel confident in this one as well, correct? I do. I think once he earns the trust of this coaching staff, he'll have a more long time. It's not like Brian Dable sitting there and saying, we have this uber talented guy. Let's just play him seven snaps. There's a reason why he's only playing seven snaps. And I think it's also just beyond the injuries that he dealt with. You watch that tape, dude. 
He had the design plays. He had the the, th- the throw that he did not throw. He had the jet sweep. Those are both ways to get the football in Kadarius Tony's hand. He's a player that obviously Shane Bowen wanted to probably circle to see how he was going to be utilized. They tried to maximize his arm. It didn't work, whatever. But all the other plays, they're just simple drag routes underneath, sometimes on the backside of three by one, just basically run a drag. And then he had a kind of like play action slide where he worked underneath uh, zone read play action. And that's a play where typically... If the flat is open, Daniel Jones can just dump the football to him. Very, very simplistic play. Get him into space, allow him to do work. But Daniel Jones ends up almost getting hit and then throwing it incomplete to Sterling Shepard. The routes that he ran were not complex at all. If he can allow the coaches to trust him enough to run more complex routes, then we may see Kadarius Tony's role grow a lot more. But I'm just not certain when that's going to be. Hopefully, it will be soon. Yeah, I love that take by you there, Nick. Um, And I think... We're both pretty confident here. This thing's going to be better than where it's at right now. That was actually number nine. I just miscounted. So we're going to get to number 10 now, and then we got a little bit of a bonus one. But number 10 is this. Things that me and Nick think after week one. We both are starting to think Andrew Thomas can be a top five offensive tackle in the NFL. Honestly, Nick, I don't think I don't think it's impossible to believe that he could actually be the best, the one one. Like it's Trent Williams right now, of course. We understand that. And there are other, by the way, people who are in the mix with Trent Williams, even Jordan Maialata, some people think on the Eagles is the best left tackle in the NFL. But considering Thomas is just 23 years old, dude, 23, that was a nice little benefit of the draft pick. He was drafted really young. And what he showed on tape in week one and how it built on what he put on tape last year, I don't think it's impossible to think that he could be the one one maybe, but as far as as soon as this season goes, can be a top five left tackle or even offensive tackle in the NFL right now. I think he can be. I really do. I don't think we're being hyperbolic here, Dan. No, I don't think we're exercising hyperbole hyperbolic. here. I think Andrew Thomas has that upside. I do. I, I want to see a little bit more, obviously, because you got guys like Trent Williams. They've been in the league for yeah. over a decade, and they, they're still and Those guys so are also a little bit more freaky from an athleticism standpoint. I would agree with that. Yeah, Trent Williams is stupid with his athletic ability still, even though he's a little bit old. You have a lot of good tackles like Tristan Wirfs who are in his draft class, but I think at the end of the season, if we're looking at Andrew Thomas and people are saying, yeah, the New York Giants have a top five offensive tackle and Andrew Thomas, I am not going to be shocked at all because it's the trajectory right now of Andrew Thomas since the first eight games of his rookie season that were pretty ugly has been pretty excellent, man. He's improved drastically in his second season. And then now only one week into the season, he looked pretty damn good, bro. There were some clips against some of these Titans edge rushers. And yeah, I know Harold Landry wasn't out there, but there were some clips against those Titans edge rushers where Thomas doesn't even look like he's trying. It doesn't. You're right. It really looks effortless. It looks effortless. And yeah, the one play that is Zudu blue, the twist, that was a really good play by Jeffrey Simmons, and that might have been the pressure that was credited against Andrew Thomas because typically you switch on that twist, but Jeffrey Simmons is just so damn quick that Andrew Thomas couldn't anticipate a twist, but Dupree was really patient with going inside around, looping around Jeffrey Simmons on that play. So I'm not going to sit here and really just fault Andrew Thomas for that, but other than that, man, the guy was pretty damn good. Now, not every play was perfect, but he's pretty damn good, and I just love his technique. I love how strong he is with his hands, his physicality, and then you talk about him as a run blocker, whether it's him pinning on the down block. He's excellent on that, but that's a more easier block, or if you want to kick him into space to locate, he has the athletic ability to do that, so I think the sky's the limit for him. Yeah, man, there are a lot he, There are a lot of great offensive tackles, young offensive tackles in the NFL right now, and he belongs in that group. I want to shout this out just because, you know, 
not take we don't we we're not we don't love to take victory laps on this podcast. I know some people accuse me of liking that. So and maybe it's a general human nature to enjoy that. But we both felt like Rashawn Slater was one of the best overall prospects in last draft class, straight up, like after the obvious ones, like the Jamar Chases, et cetera, of the world. Did you see Rashawn Slater's tape against Chandler Jones this week, Nick? I have not, but I saw I saw one clip I think Brandon Thorne put out, and I'm just not surprised by anything. He shut down Chandler Jones, dude. Chandler Jones is one of the best edges in the NFL. He completely embarrassed him. Like he looked like he was effortless for him against Chandler Jones. From everything I've seen from Rashawn Slater, like Andrew Thomas isn't there. I think that's safe to say. Rashawn Slater from the stuff. That's yeah. And that's fine. That's fine. But I think at the end of the year, Andrew Thomas can be in that conversation with Rashawn Slater. I just think it's so freaky that Rashawn Slater did that in his rookie season, performed like he did last year. And you look around the NFL, so many people passed him over because he had short arms and also because he didn't play in 2020 because of the COVID year. But you look at Carolina specifically, and you're like, dude, you guys took a cornerback over Rashawn Slater when your offensive line was like me, you, and my freaking grandma who passed away. So it's like, just a wild way that the NFL evaluators kind of are very stubborn sometimes. Like, they don't meet this threshold. We're just not going to draft exactly. that kind of thing. Yeah, the stupid arm length threshold. This dude is shutting down Chandler Jones and making him his bitch on every single rep, essentially. It was unbelievable. Anyway, the bonus one, we kind of moved to the bottom and just thrown it in as a bonus because it sucks now based on the news. But the thing we think after week one, maybe Aaron Robinson will not be an issue. Now it kind of sucks because we, we decided this before the pod and before the news, um, obviously, and who knows how long he's going to be out for. But, man, he looked pretty damn good on film in week one as far as what we were expecting, at least. He did. He did. He he got beat by Traylon Burks on the on the one play, but I feel like he has really good recovery. He was you know inches away from securing an interception. If anybody wants to go and check out all of his coverage clips that aren't just him kind of just sitting on the backside of a play action rollout, go to my Twitter. I posted it this morning. I was impressed with Aaron Robinson, and I just think it's really unfortunate that he ended up suffering an appendix injury somehow, and now he might be out for a couple weeks. Yeah, I hope it's just a couple. That'd be nice. Um, Dr. Nick, your report made me feel like it's going to be a long time. So we'll yeah, see you know, what happens. You know what type of doctor I was. I shared that gif with you. That or was, GIF with you. It's a bit of a weird... <laughs> it was a, I liked it. It was funny as hell, but it was interesting, Nick. There, I, I love how every guy just knows. You know, every guy knows who that is. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking weird. All right. Anyway, that's been 10 Things We Think About the Giants after week one. Thank you so much for tuning into the Big Blue Banter podcast. Content's going to keep churning. We have a really special guest to break down the Panthers game coming on tomorrow. We may have some other stuff coming up that hasn't been confirmed as well. We'll see. We'll let you know. You'll, you'll see it in the feed. Thank you so much. Again, only thing we'll ever ask from you is this. Please, please make sure you download every episode. You can delete right after you download so you don't want storage on your phone or whatever. But please download. That's what we need. And please, if you haven't already, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Hopefully it's five stars. And leave a question there if you want. We're going to do a mailbag soon. We want to do weekly mailbags. I was talking. I was thinking about this, Nick, but I'll talk to you a little bit more after the pod. I want to start doing some weekly mailbags. So maybe that'll be like a Friday thing that we can drop. Who knows? But thank you so much for tuning into the Big Blue Banter podcast. You make this possible. We have a lot of fun. And one final thing, we're re-upping the Instagram account because our buddy here is helping us out. Dylan Nell's listener of the podcast, at at scrim underscore Dylan, D-I-L-L-O-N on Twitter. He's pumping up our, our Instagram again. So follow us on Instagram. NY Big Blue Banter, that is. You can type it in, search bar, NY Big Blue Banter on Instagram. We'll have a lot of content coming there as well. So thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you soon.